Welcome to episode 50 of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. I'm your co-host, The Father, a.k.a. Pastor Matt, a.k.a. Matt Rawlings, and I'm joined, as always, by your trusty sidekick, Jackson the Son. And if you think the 1997 miniseries is a better adaptation than this movie, I might just have to correct you. <laughs> All right. We are a spoiler podcast. We do spoil the movies we discuss. And today, on its 40th anniversary, just last month, as we're recording this, we are covering The Shining. From 1980. The Shining, a masterpiece of modern horror, directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duval, rated R. Opens Friday, June 13. Check newspapers for local listings. Oh, boy. We've been waiting a long time to do this, haven't we? That's right. Yeah, this is, I mean, even when we talked about Dr. Sleep so so long ago, we were planning a Shining episode. But it's one of those things that's so daunting that you really have to prepare for it. Absolutely. So, <clears throat> I can you imagine a horror fan who's listening to this who hasn't? watch the shining no, i don't think they exist um even if you haven't sat down and, and actively watched the shining it's been on in somebody's house you've seen enough of it on youtube to have seen the whole movie it's impossible we don't i don't even think we need to throw up a spoiler warning uh because people know we're a spoiler podcast and it's the freaking shining exactly and it's can you believe this it's our 50th episode i know i mean listen okay this episode these were the most dense podcast notes I've taken since the Children of the Corn franchise review, if you can remember <laughs> that far back. It has been a crazy ride to get to 50 episodes, uh, but it's been amazing. Was that our third episode, Children of the Corn, something like indeed. that? It was back when we were doing monthly episodes. That was our third one. I watched, like, what, six or seven Children yes, of the Corn did. movies? Yeah. And I just remember when I started out in the first movie, there were so many notes, and then it would just get less and less as they went on. But I had a good six pages of notes. Um, this isn't quite to that level, but they are way more dense than I'm just looking back at the episode we did earlier, a lost episode, I guess, for now of Reanimator. Uh, and it is like night and day with how many notes I have on this. And it's, you know, that's just the kind of movie it is. Oh, man. So if you haven't seen it, and I can't imagine that you haven't, um, the IMDb synopsis reads, I just, I'm going to try to do this in my best trailer voice, even though I don't have one. Um, in a world where a family heads to an isolated hotel for the winter, where a sinister presence influenced the father into violence. That's weird syntax there. Influences the father into violence. Anyway, while his psychic son sees horrific forebodings from both past and future. Not bad. Yeah, yeah, it's not bad. Uh, They're never good, because here's the problem. IMDb has to walk the line between being accessible to people who haven't seen the movie and satisfying to people who have. Um, so right. you don't want to give anything away, and this is a very, like, you want to go in fresh to this movie if you've never seen it before, um, because it really will shock you in some ways, I think. Um, but oh, yeah. uh, even if you've read the book, I think the movie differs enough from the book where you will be shocked watching it. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to talk about it. It's serendipitous, actually. My friend uh, Carter is at the Overlook uh, Hotel, the exterior set. Today. No! Get out! He's, 
He sent me a picture. I'm so jealous. Uh, they have planted a hedge maze outside. They're planting it. The trees are, are really short, but they're coming up. They're about uh, like to my height. Um, so not quite where they were in the movie, but um, as you know, they don't actually exist in the exterior set, but they do now because they planted them. Wow. Okay, we, we have to do that. I mean, <clears throat> I have a brother. You have an uncle who lives in Denver, Colorado. We just need to make a trek and and go to where they shot the exteriors for yeah we got to do that so we got to we got to bring a drone around so we can fly it behind the car to recreate those opening uh oh oh, man and we're going to talk about that so first things first all right so when did you first see the shining i don't know uh probably if i were to just throw out a year probably 2016 this is my third time watching it all the way through um I had seen it many times in bits and pieces, but I think the first time I watched it all the way through was 2016. Um, and this is my third full viewing of it. You know, my, my, uh, I wouldn't say my appreciation increases every time I see it because I've always loved it, but I noticed something different to appreciate every single time. And I feel like I got something different on this viewing, but, uh, yeah, one of, one of my favorite horror movies of all time, I think it's on everybody's, uh, at least top 15 list. If you're a horror fan, um, and even if you detest Kubrick as a guy, you got to admit, this is an amazing movie. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I can't detest Kubrick as a guy because, you know, as somebody who spent so much of his life wanting to be a director, I mean, oh my gosh, the guy's a genius. So, and it is a stressful job, so we can forgive some of the, the harsher things that have been said about him. Well, we'll talk about that. We're going to get into that. We are going to get into that. But I first saw The Shining um, on VHS uh, back probably somewhere around 82, 83, somewhere around there when I was like 11 or something. Um, Wasn't allowed to see it when it came out in theaters. Uh, It did come out about the same time as The Empire Strikes Back, which I did see in theaters. Mm -hmm. Um, But... Oh, my gosh. Spoiler alert, folks. We're going to gush over this movie, are we not? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Uh, That's pretty much what all my notes are. Just, this is amazing. Um, But I'm looking forward to that. So we're going to talk about the director in a minute, but we need to discuss the cast first. Mm -hmm. Um, And not a long cast list, really, right? No, it's one of those isolation horror movies where you, you have a small cast and some setup in the beginning, and that's pretty much it. Right. So... We begin with Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance, which actually Stephen King, who, of course, this is based on his novel. And I've read the novel a couple times, though it's been a while. Um, He was against casting Jack Nicholson Mm -hmm. because he thought because in in King's mind, this is a descent into madness. And he thought Jack Nicholson (laughs) would be, though, this is madness from the beginning. What do you think of that? My thoughts exactly. I agree with Stephen King. Uh, I don't think that's faithful to the source material because I, I think I even wrote in my notes uh, in the scene, the office scene where Jack Nicholson is talking to Barry Nelson and they're talking about Grady and whatnot. His eyebrows are just crazy, man. They are going all over the place. And the way he talks, it sounds like he's thinking of ways to slice and dice everybody in that room. Uh, one of my favorite parts is the the most foreshadowing moment in The Shining, and there's a lot of foreshadowing, but the most foreshadowing moment is uh, him going, 
Well, I can assure you, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen to me. With the biggest serial killer grin on his face I've <laughs> ever seen. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if he's going to be a killer by the end of this movie. Yeah, and I've probably said this before, but I have met Jack Nicholson once. Um, there, I, for a time, lived in North Hollywood and near Jerry's Deli, which used to be kind of a staple of uh, <clears throat> life in L.A., there was a uh, driving range. And the guy who hired me to direct my only music video, uh, Brad Schmidt, great guy, um, and he was an athlete. He had been a hockey player at the University of Washington and and Brad and I were buddies. He was roommates with your uncle Brian, my brother Brian at one point. And we were at the driving range. I was trying to learn golf because your uncle Brian told me if I'm going to make it in Hollywood, you got to learn to play golf. <laughs> Never did. Uh, just frustrated the crap out of me. But um, well, I didn't make it. Well, uh, you need to gosh. work on your on your swing. I tried. Trust me, I tried. <laughs> so, um, we were at the driving range, and I was with Brad. Brad was, Brad is a big guy, like six four, really stocky former hockey player from Minnesota, and he's like driving just like John Daly. Golfers will understand what that means. I mean, he's just driving like crazy. And I'm sitting there watching him. You know, he's got his bucket. I'm waiting to use my bucket. And Brad's just knocking the crap out of these golf balls. And we hear this voice go, nice little swing you got there. And we turn around, and it's Jack Nicholson. Yeah, I would be creeped out. I think a, a shiver ran down my spine when he said that. Oh, man. I, I was just totally geeked out. And this is like 88, 89. So this is when trailers are dropping for him as the Joker. Sure, yeah. And he's there at the driving range, and I'm just like, that's Jack. That's <laughs> Jack, man. Um, <coughs> I didn't get geeked out that often, but I did then. <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm in the middle of a cough. So, take over. Yeah, uh, he's one of those actors where... Uh, definitely it feels like he was made for every role he's in. When people oh, yeah. cast him, they know it's going to be Jack Nicholson because there is no way Kubrick looked at these lines that were written for him and uh, thought, yeah, I think, you know, let's get Tom Cruise to do, deliver these lines. No way. Nobody can deliver lines like Jack Nicholson. Well, um, well, the studio. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Stanley Kubrick wanted Jack Nicholson from the beginning. Sure. The studio said, consider Robin Williams or Robert De Niro. Oh, that would have been a very different movie, especially with De Niro. <laughs> that would have been very strange. Uh, yeah, you can kind of see that, right? It's like, mm -hmm. Indy, talking to me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, he just does his old Travis from Taxi Driver routine the entire movie. Oh, that would have been, Did you see that would have been something. Williams? Robin Williams? What about him? He was considered by the studio. Oh, yeah. I don't think he can be menacing. Well, if you've seen One Hour Photo or in He wasn't really uh, but... menacing in One Hour Photo, though. He was sympathetic. That's the thing. He was like, you felt kind of bad for him. I don't feel bad for Jack Torrance at all. I just kind of detest the guy by the end of the movie. Well, and... Okay. We'll talk about this. We'll talk about this. But let's get to 
God bless her heart, Shelley Duvall as Wendy, which this role traumatized her. Yeah. I mean, Stanley uh, Kubrick was so mean to her. And not just her. I mean, he instructed the other members of the cast and crew to be cold to her as well. So she was never comfortable even when the cameras weren't rolling. Yeah, they wanted her to feel isolated. That mm-hmm. Stanley Kubrick wanted her to feel isolated. I mean, would you ever do that to somebody? <laughs> I mean, no. there's part of me that goes, all right, I want you to be a great director, but at the same time, buddy, I don't want you to be a jerk. <laughs> yeah, I, I I, don't, and she seems so sweet. I don't think I could have done it to her um, because, like, yeah, she gave an amazing performance because of it. But also, is it really worth giving her, like, PTSD for her entire life from this oh, experience? Yeah. And as, as to my knowledge, this kind of scared her off from taking on any bigger roles. And, kind of, I, I mean, I don't know her from anything else at this level. Well, she was in Roxanne. She was in Popeye. She's been, she was in uh, Annie Hall. She's, I mean, she's done a lot of big uh, movies. But, yeah, I mean... Oh, bless her. Certainly not horror. I don't think you watch they're doing horror. No, if you make if you watch the making of The Shining, bless her heart. I mean, Mm -hmm. oh, my gosh, she went through. Let's just say she went through hell to get this movie made. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the movie didn't do well critically when it was released. So she probably got all for nothing financially. We'll talk about that. But but what about Danny Lloyd as Danny? Uh, I mean, great kid performance. Um Obviously, and this is going to be no surprise to people, not as high class as Nicholson's performance. Uh, but as far as child performances go, you believe him 100 um, percent. And he kind of plays two characters in a way, both Danny and Tony. And uh, I mean, he's pretty good. Now, I, I do have a question, though, really quick. Um, right. Tony confuses me. Uh, so Tony is the, manif- the manifestation of Danny's shine, right? Right. Well... well Actually, in the notes, it's a manifestation of Danny in the future. Okay. That's what I was wondering. I was wondering why Danny Shine would have a personality, but Dick's, Dick Hollerens wouldn't. Uh, and, like, maybe I was thinking maybe childhood imagination. He just doesn't know how to process uh, these powers. But then Dick mentioned he's had his shine since childhood. So I was thinking, yeah, that Tony was perhaps like another shine user communicating through Danny because we see in Dr. Sleep that people with shine can like possess others with, with, um, shine power. So that's, that's what I was thinking. Well, did you know that the character Danny Lloyd is named Danny Anthony Lloyd? Uh, no, I did not know that. that Yeah. In the book, it's Danny Anthony Lloyd. Mm hmm. So Tony is his middle name. Sure. Okay. Now, this is the cool thing that I learned researching the trivia on this and watching the documentaries and so forth. Um, So the whole thing where Danny Lloyd points up his finger and wrinkles his finger, curls his finger Mm -hmm. when Tony is talking, that was Danny Lloyd, the actor's choice. Interesting. An improvised moment is one of the most iconic things from this movie. Yeah, absolutely. I'm surprised uh, that, that Kubrick allowed that. Usually he's very strict on, on his vision, but I guess he thought it worked best. Well, but his vision, like, takes 60 to 100 takes, so... Yeah. Um, he... So you have Scatman Crothers, who I love, as Dick Halloran. 
Did you know that Kubrick wanted Slim Pickens for the role of Halloran? That would have been an interesting crossover from a previous episode. Um, yeah, I mean, I I like the cast as it is, but it's interesting to me to see these uh, like the like the remake as I mentioned earlier, the nineteen ninety seven remake, and see who they casted when they when Stephen King had first choice. Because and let me just go ahead and say that's god awful. Yeah, that is a much worse cast than uh, Kubrick landed on. It's horrendous. I think Scatman Carruthers is amazing as Dick Halloran. But so he wanted Slim Pickens, but Slim Pickens turned it down because he hated working with Kubrick on the set of Dr. Strangelove. Mm -hmm. And this is going to come in. I mean, okay, we've talked about this. We've had a, a Tarantino episode, all except we've talked about how directors sometimes want to work with the same people. Nobody wanted to work again with Kubrick. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense from what I'm hearing on set. You, you, when you have these intense perfectionists um, who want, they can see the, the project in their head, the final project, but nobody else can, that creates a lot of conflict. Because obviously he's like taking 60 to 100 takes of every, every part of the movie, and everybody else is like, that was a great performance. That was, that was, I gave it all my all. And he's like, but it's not how I imagined it. Um, so I honestly, I, I'm telling you right now, if I was on the set, I probably would think twice before working with Kubrick again, um, because he is, I mean, it's just grueling. And uh, as I understand it, this is a very long process. Oh, very, very long. So, um, we need to bring up, and you brought it up on Twitter and this Barry Nelson as mm -hmm. Allman. Yeah. An amazing performance. I mean, he's barely in it, but he feels like a real guy, which is what blew me away. His little, um, I don't know, he, he has these little ticks that make him feel so, like he's not delivering lines. He feels like a real guy right. talking to Jack Nicholson. And I actually think he outacted Jack Nicholson in that opening office scene. Wow. Just because it felt like a regular guy just talking to Jack Nicholson. It felt like a real interview of him, uh, which I thought was amazing. I mean, Mr. Ullman... Nobody remembers Mr. Ullman after their f first viewing of The Shining, certainly not after the ending. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's very immersive. He, he acts, um, yeah, I think he, he out-acts Nicholson in that scene. Not to say that uh, he's a better actor necessarily. I don't know uh, what it would have been like if he had a bigger role. But, yeah, I was very impressed uh, by his role there. And, obviously, he's in a lot of very popular stuff like The Thin Man, uh, later sequels and stuff, you know. He's he's you he's know the, what he he was the very first James Bond on film. Oh really? Yeah, he did, I did the nine. I think it's 1954. Maybe wrong. He did a 1954 television version of Casino Royale as the very first James Bond on film. And he's American. Uh, yeah, they they switched that up in the television version. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Um. Yeah. I mean, I, I like I said, I really liked him. Um, I, who else was I talking about? I, I, I did have that, that, um, reply on Twitter because I was so blown away. I was actually tweeting while watching the movie. Um, oh yeah. Joe Turkle as, uh, Lloyd, the, the bartender, yeah. uh, has a great little performance where he's kind of matching Jack Nicholson's level of crazy. Um, and then Philip Stone, of course, um, just a great little cast overall. I feel like, um, so very few real characters, um, but they all like make an impact when they come on screen. 
Yeah, and did you know Barry Nelson was also in an episode of the original, and I know you love the original, mm-hmm. cast of Battlestar Galactica. Oh, wow. Yeah, that guy went around in Hollywood. Um, he do, I mean, he's definitely, you recognize him. As soon as you see him, you're like, oh, yeah, that guy. Um, but what the reason why The Shining works so well, I feel like, um, is a lot of the members of the cast weren't A-list. They weren't huge. I mean, except Jack Nicholson, maybe. Um, so you really feel like these are real people kind of going insane in isolation, and you sympathize with them. I mean, Shelley Duvall, as we mentioned earlier, um, I don't, like, really recognize her from a lot other than Popeye. And I've seen Annie Hall once, but that's not what I recognize her from. And that was before The Shining. So um, I don't know. It just helps me so much. I feel like they're Roxanne real is Roxanne with Steve Martin is amazing. I love that movie. But mm-hmm. the cast overall, I think what you're saying is the cast overall, we can agree, is perfectly cast. Mm-hmm. Superb. Yeah, one of the best horror movie casts of all time. I mean, the Torrances feel like a real family. Like that scene when they're driving in the car. It's all right. You saw it on TV. I mean, it's just a great scene. It really does feel like a family road trip. Um, so just just great overall. Well, and I think it was the, you know, I think I heard Dr. Shock say this on HMP when they did their thing on, you know, uh, Stephen King, which is, I mean, Jack Nicholson does do what Stephen King feared, but I do think works in the movie. He portrays menace really early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's that seed in there that he hurt Danny. Um, he claims it was unintentional. But, I mean, you have to put a lot of force to kind of dislocate a kid's arm. And uh, there's that seed of violence and past uh, anger issues. Um, obviously, he was an alcoholic, and he's now been off alcohol for a while. Six months, I think he says. Um, though, I think Wendy says something different earlier in the movie. Um, so, Yeah, I think you're right. So uh, there is that seed there where he's not just a regular guy. He has had problems in the past that could make him more susceptible to evil influence, uh, which I don't think was necessarily King's vision. I mean, obviously, all King's characters are flawed people. They're, they're real people. But Jack Nicholson is kind of a psychopath starting off. He's just been containing it pretty well until the Overlook breaks him. Yeah, and... I mean, so you also have, I mean, like Shelley Duvall in the bat scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see real conflict in her face. Can you not? Yeah. Well, that's because Jack Nicholson was kind of being cold to her on set. I mean, they were there was real tension there. And I am I would be scared of him. He's got a real physicality to him on set um, and on film. So I can definitely understand they are acting the crap out of this movie and a lot of it doesn't even feel like acting, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, it, it just feels like you're watching real footage of these people, you know, just kind of being terrorized. Absolutely. So, you know, we've talked about, you know, Danny Lloyd doing the finger thing, you know, with uh, <clears throat> with Tony and, and the menace portrayed by Jack early on. Shelley Duvall feels conflicted. Scatman Crothers comes across as a true father figure, mm-hmm. don't you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, 
and Danny also has something to relate to with with Dick because they both got the shine, and he's never been able to explain that to anybody because Tony told him not to. But then, you know, I, I like the connection they have for what little time they share they share on screen. It did feel nice to know that Danny had somebody to actually look up to. Um, but I mean, it's short lived, obviously, because Dick flies home and then, uh, succinctly, you know, he gets an ax to the chest later on, <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, but which that, w- that all pays that off. feel kind of rushed to you. It does, but it doesn't bother me so much on repeat viewings because be- mostly because of Dr. Sleep, we get a return of, uh, Dick Holleran react, like interacting with Danny. So I, I, I. I, I'm not too, like, offended by that or anything. I understand why they had to kill somebody off um, because it's a horror movie. You know, everybody thinks you got to kill somebody in a horror movie. And um, it was such a small cast, I guess they saw him as the most disposable because he had the least screen time of the main cast. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, like I said, the reason I, I am, I'm not more, like, bewildered by that decision uh, is because he makes a return in Doctor Sleep, and I felt like that was a, a satisfying payoff. So, did your viewing this time mm-hmm. was it influenced by Doctor Sleep? Yeah, yeah, definitely it was. Though in a lesser way than I thought it would be. I mean, I remember more of The Shining than I do Doctor Sleep because I've only seen Doctor Sleep once, um, and it's been seems like over a year now. Uh, so. I, I did notice a couple of things. Uh, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember when they referenced that in The Shining. Um, obviously, I, some things were lessened for me. I feel like some of the dramatic tension and scenes like the, the iconic bathtub scene uh, with the lady are kind of lessened now that we know, like, that makes a reappearance in, uh, in uh, Dr. Sleep. That's not just a one-off kind of creepy thing. Apparently, that's just a, a spirit, and it always takes that form. Um, right. But in other ways, it was enhanced. Like I said, with the Dick Holleran thing, I wasn't so offended by his death because I know that he returns as kind of a shine ghost, almost a fourth ghost in a, in a, in a way. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, back to what I was saying earlier, great interactions between Danny and, and Dick, and I wish they had had more screen time together. Mm. So let's go ahead and jump to the screenplay. Do you think, I know we know that Stephen King is not a fan of the screenplay. Mm-hmm. He wrote a version which Kubrick chucked. Um, and then Mick Garris did a faithful adaptation in 97, which in my opinion is terrible. So what do you mm-hmm. think of the screenplays? Uh, it's fantastic. I like The Shining 1980 better than the book. Um, it's just because it's just so surreal i don't know I, I it doesn't feel like anything i've ever seen before even from kubrick or from from king it just feels like its own entity and in, in a way sort of hearkening back to the overlook being its own entity but um yeah i i love it it doesn't feel too stephen king i mean obviously you have the author as the main character who's kind of an extension of stephen king's uh, self, which is part of the reason I feel like King was so offended by the fact that he cast Jack Nicholson as kind of this insane guy, because Jack, it's it's no surprise, it's no secret that Jack is kind of an extension of King. He's like the placeholder for King. Um, so, I mean, he was probably like, no, he's a good guy. He starts off as a good guy like me. You can't cast somebody who's obviously uh, going to be insane from the start. 
Um, but yeah, I, I would agree with you 100%. I mean, it opened up with that thing about the 1997 miniseries. I actually hate that, <laughs> that miniseries, just because uh, why would you try? I mean, they've seen it. Why would they? We've got the book. We've got the movie. They're two separate things. Why try to make an adaptation of the book that will be worse than the book and the movie? Like, I just don't understand. And I like Mick Garris. Um, I've liked oh, stuff that he's done. Oh, he seems like just like a sweet guy. Yeah, and definitely. And I love movies like Batteries Not Included. I liked Nightmare Cinema. Um, I even liked, um, to give you a more recent example, uh, Digging Up the Marrow. But, like, come on. <laughs> Why try to recreate the spark that was uh, Kubrick's The Shining? I, I don't get it. And there are people who actually prefer it, mostly just because King prefers it. Wait a minute. Who prefers it? I don't know. I see. I Listen, I see hot takes on Twitter every single day, um, and I, they just fly right by me because I'm so used to it at this point. If you really want me to do research, I could shoot you a message uh, later with screenshots. I guarantee you there are people who will defend the 1997 miniseries to their grave as a superior uh, adaptation, King included. I mean, that's that's a person I can give you right now. Well, you talk King, to him, yeah, but I mean... I... <sighs> there are real horror fans who prefer the miniseries um, just just for the fact that it was a more accurate uh, adaptation, not because it was a better one. And, you know, some of the changes well, that were made for the movie. Th- I, I'm sorry. There are some horror novels or short stories or whatever that just shouldn't be a- adapted. Yep. I agree. And not certainly not adapted in their original format. Not, yeah, it, not faithfully, no. The problem with Stephen King books being adapted is that his writing style is so strange. Um, he hops around in time. He uses very, like, like he'll put you in the mind of one of the characters where it's just like stream of consciousness. Um, sometimes characters say things that they don't really mean. You have to really like think about it. So when people adapt King novels, they'll just be like, this is a word on the page. I'll make it on the screen. And it just doesn't work. It doesn't feel right because King writes in this really weird kind of trippy world. That's only his own. You can't recreate it. Um, so when people change stuff about King's novels and adapt them that way, I think it's usually for the better. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think, honestly, that the reason that the Dr. Sleep movie uh, wasn't as uh, um, like outstanding as many expected it to be and many complained about it on Twitter, it's because it tried to adapt both the book and the movie to get Stephen King's okay. Because uh, in this day and age, you're not making a King adaptation without his express uh, permission because, uh, you know, he pretty much controls everything about him. So um, that's what I think the problem was with Dr. Sleep. Still a good movie. Um, But when you have something like The Shining that changes the perfect amount yet is still faithful to the tone of the original, that's where you get magic. I I agree. But let's talk about the ending. Mm-hmm. Of course, Key and Peel lampooned it. Yep, that's what I was going to say. The uh, Continental Breakfast uh, sketch is one of my favorites. I mentioned it on our Jordan Peel episode, um, but it's so funny, and I honestly think it makes more sense than the The Shining itself. <laughs> All right, we'll get there. Um, 
So I think I know the answer to this, but the cinematography. Mm-hmm. Well, it's fantastic. It's Kubrick. He knew, he knew how to get talent, and he had an eye for things as well. Um, everything is beautiful and symmetrical. Um, and he did a lot of experimenting, actually. Um, you know, I see other directors in him, in this movie, and later directors, actually. It's not that he was influenced. It's that he influenced other people. Um, right. Like, one of the things that I wrote down is that, that bathtub scene. The way everything is arranged and the way it's shot so dreamily, it feels like a Wes Anderson movie. Like, one of the live-action Wes Anderson movies. Oh, I, I hadn't picked up on that, yeah. And I feel like movies like um, the Grand Budapest Hotel were influenced by The Shining. I think that's you can't deny that aesthetically and tonally in some parts. It's it's very much The Shining. Um, but I feel like uh, this this is the most experimental that Kubrick was in his early career um, with the cinematography. Well, it's not early career, but it's mid career. Sure. Before he did stuff like Eyes Wide Shut is what I'm is what I mean. Um, oh, that's yeah, that's wow, yeah. Okay. And and here's the thing, I love his early career. I love his, his the mid, middle of his career. But I feel like when you've made so many classics, when you've made like people have trouble naming their favorite Kubrick movie because there are so many. I mean, I oh, don't I know do. where I put yeah. stuff. In my in my opinion right now, I feel like The Shining is my favorite Kubrick film, followed by, in no particular order, because you can't order them, A Clockwork Orange and 2001 and Full Metal Jacket. And then there are people who will defend to the oh, death stuff like Barry Lyndon and Eyes Wide Dr. Shut. Dr. Strangelove. And Dr. Strangelove, amazing. of course. Um, so, I mean, he's got one of those careers where you've made so many classics, you can't really go up from there. His stuff in the 70s and 80s is just, like, perfect. And what do you have to say about the score? Amazing score. I think the most iconic, obviously, is the opening credits theme, which I was actually listening to uh, before we recorded this, just because it's so good. Um, I'm a huge fan of that classic synth style, um, especially when it's not just, like, one Casio keyboard. It's kind of like a whole orchestra of them. Um, that's my favorite, uh, style of, of, of horror movie soundtrack, but there's also a lot of real orchestration, uh, lots of real instrumentation in this movie. Uh, and it really just creates this odd, surreal, kind of almost psychedelic tone, especially in the scenes where nothing is happening and the, the score will be like really, really intense. And it's just windy walking. Um, I think of the scene where uh, Jack is writing. He's just writing alone. Then Wendy walks in, and there's this building. And can, like, and can we just say, most boring novel ever. <laughs> yep, yep. It's just one sentence over and over again. But <laughs> hey, I mean, some people pay good money for that. I mean, there are there. Are, well, hey, I'd I'd rather read that than James Joyce's Ulysses again. But anyway, <laughs> there are people that have made the same book for the past 50 years um and that's been king for the last 15 years oh but oh well okay come on mr mercedes was pretty good sure mr mercedes is great from what i hear that book the outsiders or whatever it was pretty good but uh let's be honest nothing has hit the heights of his first run in the 70s and 80s and even re-releases like of his earlier stuff i like when he re-released the stand 
But uh, yeah, I mean, Jack Torrance, he doesn't seem to be a very skilled writer, uh, pretty limited in his use of vocabulary, though I do appreciate the typography uh, displayed. He's got a knack for uh, really switching things up uh, with the formatting of his pages. But well, um, did you know that he had Kubrick had his own personal secretary write that over months? That's that what months, I was that's what she was doing. I was thinking in my head, some poor PA or secretary or something had to sit and type. And even though you don't see all and, the and in different languages, mm-hmm. and oh, really? They shot it several different times for different yes, releases. For different releases, yes. <sighs> Boy. I was just thinking in my head, so you see a stack of them. Wendy, like, picks up a few of them and kind of tosses them. And I was thinking in my head, even though you don't see them, you know that every single page in that stack is typed with all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Even though they're not even shown on screen, you know Kubrick had them all typed out like that. Um, And it's just painful to know that some PA had to do that. Um, Or secretary, like you said. So that's, yeah, definitely Jack Torn's not the, the most skilled writer. I really think he needs a change of environment. Yeah, well, oh my gosh, this poor cast and crew. They, you know, I always thought that, that okay, they shot the exteriors in Colorado. They shot the interiors in Oregon. I was wrong. Most of the uh, interiors were shot in England over a year, a year Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, it takes a while when you're, as we mentioned before, doing a hundred takes of every shot. It takes a while to get it down. But a year, man. Can you imagine being poor Danny Lloyd having to ride your, your three-wheel, your tricycle, uh, over and over and over again in huge loops around the overlook and doing take after take after take of that? Uh, and f- from what I've heard and what I've seen, that hotel was not heated properly. <laughs> I mean, oh, after a while, no. you was, must there be- was no air conditioning where they shot in London. Um, there was no air conditioning and they were dying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, can you imagine poor little Danny Lloyd having to ride around and around and around in loops? For oh, bless his heart. As, as Kubrick screaming, you know, it didn't get the right turn, the turn at the right time. I didn't like the way that it sounded when you came off the rug onto the hard, the hardwood floor. Well, apparently, according to Nicholson, like, okay, so you remember the scene where he's throwing the t- tennis ball against the wall? Yeah. Uh, they did that 60 times. Yep, seems about right. And it was his idea to do it 60 times. And every time Nicholson was like, so that was a good take, right, Stanley? He's like, yep, do it again. (laughs) He wants that coverage, man. I understand. Um, Every good film student knows coverage, covered. Yeah, you know, you can't edit around a movie with very little coverage. All right, but Um, we're going to, one of these days, um, we're going to do a franchise review of Halloween. And Carpenter didn't do that. That's true. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Carpenter is a very non-traditional uh, director. Kubrick was doing it like the auteur way. He was, he, was, he was getting that auteur theory before it was even a well-known kind of thing in America. But Hitchcock often did things in one take. But anyway, and so um, not much of a body count, though, right? Nope. Surprisingly, for one of the most popular horror movies of all time, only two deaths, one of which was murder and one of which was natural, um, just elemental damage. But, uh, yeah, very surprising with how long the movie is in particular. A slasher that would be half this length would have triple the body count that this has at least. Um, So very surprising. 
Well, before we get in depth on Mr. Kubrick, did it surprise you to learn that this was not a box office hit at the time and that it received mixed reviews? Not at all. Doesn't surprise me one bit. Really? Uh, box office wise, it doesn't surprise me because think of the thing. Uh, that is oh, another okay. movie that's so masterfully made uh, and similar in a lot of ways to The Shining with several elements, but um, just did not do well either critically or financially. And here's the thing with The Shining. It is it's long. It's strange and surreal, and it, it doesn't make much sense on one viewing. Um, it's hard to be able to recommend that to your friends. You go and see it in theaters, you're like, what was that? I think I liked it, but I don't want to recommend it to my friends, so nobody goes to see it. Um, that's why I think it did so well in home media and, and slowly became a huge cult hit. It's because at that point, you own it. You can watch it as many times as you want, and then you can fully understand it and then recommend it to people um, that way. I think that's a lot easier than paying... Uh, for a ticket every time. And back in the early 80s, in the late 70s, experimentation was not uh, smiled upon by critics, it seems. They were still uh, stuck on the fundamentals of film, the traditional style of film. That's what they wanted to see. Um, and anything that strayed away from that was deemed uh, too strange and part of this weird uh, psychedelic movement. And they, they didn't like it. So it doesn't surprise me one bit that The Shining did not do well in either front. Okay. It, well, it surprised me. I mean, the budget was $16 million. Yeah. Okay, it made $42 million on its first run. So it made some money, but not a lot. A because... slim profit margin, yeah, because you have to double it due to marketing. Yeah, absolutely. At least double it. So, um, but, and the idea always was that Stanley Kubrick just didn't care about those things. John Landis in interviews has said that he used to speak to Stanley Kubrick by phone and he debunked that idea. He said Kubrick was, you know, yeah, he was an auteur, auteur, but he cared about box office. He cared about marketing. Um, and he would actually talk to John Landis about how to best market your films. Yeah, I mean, obviously, every filmmaker wants to make money and wants to have their film well-received. Um, I don't know of any filmmaker who's like, I want my movie to only be on the underground. I only want the real film fans to see my movie. No, everybody wants to have their movie seen by as many people as possible. Um, even Kubrick, who who presented himself as this, like, Oh, I'm above the the regular masses. I'm I'm this this absolute genius. What she was, I'm not disputing that. Um, but of course, everybody's concerned about money, no matter what they tell you. Even these like punk, uh, in underground like bands, if they got a major record deal, they would sign it immediately because money well, is yeah. everything. Motorhead did it. Guns N' Roses did it. But, um, so for example, the bar scene where Jack goes to get a drink, mm -hmm. right? Um, and he goes to visit Lloyd and he has his first drink. He's been sober for, you know, whatever it is that took six weeks to shoot. And they shot it from nine thirty AM to 10 30 at night. Does that surprise you? No, not at all. Uh, really? I believe it. I believe it. Uh, Kubrick and Nicholson were crazy. 
Um, and I really believe that that desperation on set, that that like crazed perfectionism, is what led to everybody acting so deranged in the movie. I mean, that scene where Nicholson is talking to Lloyd is some of the the weirdest cinema I've ever seen because their conversations don't mean what they seem on the surface. Everything is kind of like uh, shrouded. It's 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 exposition, but it's not presented that way. And they are going crazy. I mean, Nicholson's eyebrows are, are doing crazy stuff and his voice is fluctuating all over the place. Sometimes he'll slip into that kind of angry yelling then slip right back into that kind of cool and calculating it is insane, and you can only get that level of performance from take after take after take and week after week. So would you do that? No, 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 I would not. You um, wouldn't even if you had, I mean, all right, so if there's such a thing as a muse mm-hmm. and it visits you as like, Jackson, this is what it takes to produce a masterpiece. Yeah. You're saying no. No, yeah, I would say no to that. Um I wrote this down in my notes somewhere. No matter how amazing this movie is, no matter how influential it was in pop culture and how many avenues were opened up for the people who made this movie, um, I would never want to work on this, even just to say that I did. Because it, in the to- at the time, it would be such an emotional investment and immediately after its release, I would get no payoff at all because of how poorly it did. Um, critically, I would feel crushed that you devote months and months of, of hard, grueling work, years of being uncomfortable and hating your life just to have it come out and people to say, meh, and it to only make a little bit of money. I mean, imagine if you got a percentage of this movie and you're working just for that, a percentage. You're like, okay, it's a Kubrick movie. It's going to make money. I'll just get a percentage. And then it barely does over. It's got a slim profit margin made for 16, and it's got just barely 10 million in profit. I would be crushed if after spending years on this. And even Kubrick, you know that even by the end, Kubrick uh, was going a little crazy because this was a, this was a process. Okay, yeah. And so, and he was constantly Kubrick was constantly rewriting the script. Yeah, so much so that Jack Nicholson refused to memorize any lines until right before shooting because he thought it was a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, why do that Leonardo DiCaprio thing and and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where you're sitting down and trying to remember the lines when they're just going to be changed on you the next morning? Think about how crushing that would be. You sit around for hours and hours not getting any sleep because you're trying to remember the lines, and then nah, never mind. I like this way better. Oh man, I can, that would be an awful set to work on. All right, so you're you're telling me as an aspiring filmmaker, you're a fan of okay. We're going to get this down. We're going to mm-hmm. rehearse it. We're going to do it. And that's how we're going to shoot it. We're going to deviate from it. Yeah, here's the thing. Whenever I shoot something, I get two or three good takes of something. Like, takes that I can use, that I think are usable. Like, obviously, there are going to be takes where stuff is messed up, bloopers, you know, whatever. Um, but two or three good takes. Because you don't know what, when, when it all comes edited together, sometimes the, like just the tones of people talking even, like when you're doing shot reverse shot, it just doesn't work. So you need two to three different options. I do not think you need 60 good shots. 
I guarantee you that half of those uh, shots of Jack Nicholson bouncing the ball, let's say, were identical. They were pretty much identical because they're so highly choreographed. Um, I guarantee you that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. If they just edited like a different shot in of Jack Nicholson throwing the ball around, I wouldn't notice. But the payoff, like I said, the payoff is just not there. As great as this movie is, I would not want to go insane working on it. So uh, do you think, um, Mm -hmm. as an aspiring filmmaker, Sure. that are you making a film for the people who are going to watch it one time or the people who are going to watch it a hundred times? Oh, the people that are going to, well, you have to that, see, that's tricky. There's a balance there. If you want your, your film to do well commercially, if you want it to uh, be a widely successful movie, you have to do it with the first time viewing in mind. This is going to be the thing that somebody goes to see in theaters and is like, wow, that was great. I'll recommend it to my friends. If you make a movie that you know is going to be a cult film, I feel these are movies like Scott Pilgrim or even shows like Arrested Development, where they're so jam-packed full of like content, whether that's jokes or little scares or, or little like even existentialism like we see in The Shining, little uh, pieces of lore that you have to put together. It's not going to do well on its initial run because people don't care enough to do the work until it comes out on a home release. So that's the thing. What you really got to do is make a movie that is really, really like, like accessible, but will have one or two things that will reveal themselves well, in repeat viewings. Okay, but we're both a fan. Uh, we're both fans of Jordan Peele. Mm-hmm. Do you not think he's balanced both of those things? He has, and and but here's the thing with with Jordan Peele's movies. They're more towards the, the side of The Shining. I think, like, especially Us is not really that accessible of a movie. I mean, you, re- you have to do a lot of thinking with Us. But the thing is, it's so effortlessly stylish and entertaining that he doesn't have to worry about losing you. Because even if he has a weird story points and, and possible plot holes or whatever, you don't care because you're, you're having such a great time watching it, and it's so thoughtfully put together. You can tell that a lot of love went into it, um, so you're going to recommend it to people. I think the reason Get Out did so well and ultimately went on to win an Oscar is because of how both thoughtful and accessible it was. Um just because of how entertaining it was. It's not like a mindlessly turn off your your brain kind of movie. You have to think about the plot developments and what they mean on a larger scale. And uh, Jordan Peele himself has said that he wants to make you think about real life when you watch his movies. They're not really escapism. They're metaphors or, you know, allegories for things that are actually going Mm -hmm. on in the real world. And he wants you to take away a lesson from them. So that's why I think his movies do so well. Kubrick is not as great at uh, making movies accessible and entertaining as uh, as Jordan Peele is, because I have never heard anybody say Get Out is a daunting movie to confront. You really have to prepare yourself going to Get Out. But with something like A Clockwork Orange, you, you have to be a film nerd to really like enjoy that movie, because it's so at times brutal and at times slow and, and methodical. It's not going to grab just the average viewer. So... 
let's go on from that. Um, mm-hmm. Stanley Kubrick had a famous conversation with Stephen King, according to Stephen King. Now, Kubrick later denied this, but anyway. Um, Stephen King said that Kubrick would often call him at, like, odd hours. Mm-hmm. And he was having this discussion with him about, he was like, Kubrick was like, doesn't it give you hope that there are ghosts? And King said something, well, yeah, but there's also the possibility of hell. And Mm -hmm. and Kubrick said, wait a minute. Do you believe in God? (laughs) And King said, well, yes, Stanley, I do. And and Kubrick famously said, well, you're wrong and hung up on it. I can see Kubrick doing that. I don't yeah. think any amount of denying those allegations will ever make them go away. That's a very Kubrick thing. We know he's an existential, agnostic, if not atheistic, uh, kind of guy. But uh, Where yeah. King is not. And yeah. King, King famously takes flack for believing in God and praying and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And he's shot back at critics like, what do you care if I believe in God and praying keeps me sober, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But... Um, what do you think of that? I I mean, I love the fact that Kubrick and, and King kind of had both this love-hate relationship during the production of this, where yeah. King hated all the changes Kubrick was making, but Kubrick didn't care. It's funny to me that Kubrick had that kind of clout back then, where he could just kind of push around King, whereas nowadays, I don't think any director could do that. Um, but yeah, I, I love it. I don't know. It's endearing to me, even though they hated each other's guts for a while. It was It's endearing to me to hear these stories of them interacting, just because they're so different, yet they go together so well. I would love to see a buddy cop movie between Kubrick and, and King. <laughs> Let's make it happen. Let's produce it. Somehow we'll, we'll get people to play them, and I think that could be great. Stanley and Steven. Let's yep. let's make it happen. All right. So that, or I was thinking Kubrick and King, since they're both Cage. Oh, there you go. Much better. Yep, you're much better at those. All right. So it was critically panned at the time. I mean, Roger Ebert complained at first that he couldn't connect with any of the characters. Gene Siskel described it as quote a crashing disappointment. Ebert changes mind later, but what do you think of that? Uh, very disappointing. I mean, Siskel and Ebert made a lot of decisions that I don't agree with. Um, I was talking to you about this the other day. Uh, when they watched Reservoir Dogs, they thought that it didn't go far enough. They're like, it, it wasn't enough for me. It, that's the point of the movie, guys. It's not supposed to show you the crime. It's supposed to show you right. the things you don't normally see. They're like, it could have gone farther. It could have shown us more. Guys, you missed the point. That's not what Tarantino was trying to do. And then they watched Pulp Fiction, and they gave Pulp Fiction a glowing review, but then they said, but we think Tarantino is just a fad. We don't think he'll continue. And uh, newsflash, yeah. guys, he's been working <laughs> consistently for the past 30 years. Um, R- I, although R.I.P. Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel. Absolutely. And I love watching their show. It's entertaining to watch it, but sometimes their opinions on movies were just whack. And, and Ebert made some movies he was involved in like what's that valley of the living dolls or whatever yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Beyond, whenever he yeah. made a movie he almost always fell into the same criticisms he gave to movies he reviewed which i thought was hilarious um just shows you there are different you know different strokes people have different uh talents i understand why back in 1980 this movie would be hard to grasp there hadn't been a lot like this. If you weren't a hardcore Kubrick fan, I feel like back then, especially when this was just out in theaters, 
you would be disappointed, I feel, in making that investment and going in and spending two hours watching this because it's it's not conclusive. I don't think the ending is satisfying, and I think that's uh, purposefully so. Really? It's not. It's it's meant to make you go back in your mind and think about all the events leading up to it. It's, it doesn't tie up everything in a little bow. And I feel like that's another problem King had with it. Though he likes to have suspenseful endings that kind of leave you with some ambiguity. Like some, he loves, especially in stuff like The Stand, which is my favorite book uh, by King. Yeah. If he's got some foreshadowing, foreshadowing towards a later book or even a sequel that he's teasing. But for the most part, the characters have a complete arc. I think the, the, the best example is The Body, which was later adapted into Stand By Me. You've seen that ending. You know it's bittersweet and whatever, but it's a very conclusive ending. It shows you where all the characters went. The Shining does not do that. It ends rather abruptly. Uh, Jack Torrance is running through the hedge maze. Wendy and, and Danny escape. And then abruptly, we see, we see Jack Torrance sit down, and then abruptly we cut to the next day. Jack Nicholson's face is frozen over. His corpse is grotesquely positioned in, in the hedge maze. And then we cut to a slow zoom in on an old uh, get-together photo, a ball, a 4th of July ball, funnily. I mean, yesterday was 4th of July. It's kind of funny that I watched right. it on 4th of July. 4th of July ball, uh, and Jack Nicholson is there in the 1920s, kind of hearkening back to an earlier statement made by Grady, who says, you've always been the caretaker of the Overlook Hotel. Um I don't think that's a satisfying ending, but I don't mind because you, listening to all these theories, and I know you were watching a, a video earlier talking about theories about, uh, about The Shining, and we've both seen Room 237, which I'd like to touch on later. Oh, but, yeah. Um, but that's what Kubrick did. I feel like with all of his movies, he wanted you to go out of the theater trying to put together the pieces and come back with something wholly original from anybody else who watched the movie. Um, he was very secretive. I think in the same way that J.J. Abrams is now, several directors are like that. They took direct inspiration from Kubrick where they're not going to explain everything about the movie. They leave that to the fans. And I think that's a great, uh, a great tool that the director has. I mean, I, I, I love the ending, but honestly, like I said earlier, the Continental Breakfast sketch made more sense. All right, we'll talk about that. But all right, since that, I mean, it has been critically re-recognized. Ebert gave it a mixed review, but then he put it on one of his great movies lists, so he changed his mind on it. Um, so it's since been recognized as a classic, analyzed in great detail, such as in the documentary Room 237, which I know you are a big fan of, right? Well, um... <laughs> Listen, I think technically that documentary is very well made. Um, there are lots of people that are very passionate about The Shining that put their hearts and souls into that movie. But I think the theories are so dumb. Most of them make no sense whatsoever. Uh, they have evidence, quote unquote. Um, but but I got to say, and I want to ask you what your favorite theory is from Room 237 about The Shining. But I got to say my favorite is that uh, Kubrick had his face airbrushed in to the opening credit sequence of uh, of The Shining. 
And I thought it was so funny that the way they demonstrated that, and I can kind of see it now, but the way they demonstrated that originally was to take a photo of Kubrick, put it over top the clouds, then Photoshop the picture of Kubrick to fit the, the clouds. They couldn't find a picture of Kubrick that was in the clouds. They had to take a photo of him and move it around and manipulate it to be in the same position as the cloud face. They had to like widen his face and like change his facial features to make it fit, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, and I think that's kind of where all the theories lie, where it's just like, well, if we look at it this way and we kind of we kind of unfocus our eyes, squint a little bit, close one, it kind of looks like this, which can only mean one thing. The entire thing was the moon landing or whatever, you know. Um, I think a lot of people have the same opinion as me, that the theories are ridiculous in, in Room 237, but that is presented in a, uh, a entertaining way. I love the documentary. Um I know that Kubrick denied a lot of the theories, um, but given that it took him so many years to make it, mm -hmm. that he was meticulous, that mm -hmm. he was eccentric, that he was brilliant, and also Kubrick denied a lot of the conversations that Stephen King said he had with him. Mm -hmm. And Stephen King does not strike me as being a liar. I believe King, 100%, and especially the things he's saying with that whole God conversation. That yes. is so Kubrick. Yes. And so, for example, okay, and you remember the scene where Dick Halloran is in his hotel room or whatever it is in Florida. Mm-hmm. All right. Beside his TV, there are a stack of records. Yeah. On the front, there is a album called Commoner's Crown, a 1975 album by a British folk, uh, folk rock group called Steel Eye Span. Mm -hmm. The album has a track called Long Lampkin, based on a traditional song called Lampkin, which gives an account of a murder of a woman and her infant son by a man. Okay. Okay. So that's the kind of attention... Kubrick gave to his films despite his denials. You don't think that could have been a coincidence? No, I don't think that's... How is that a coincidence? Okay, uh, what if he had had Jimi Hendrix, a Jimi Hendrix record, and it had Hey Joe? I think people would be saying the same thing. Oh, he went and shot his woman down. He went and killed his, his wife. He was trying to kill his wife. All right, but he spent years making movies, and sure. he went I... over things with a fine-tooth comb. I mean, he had boxes of notes on his movies i mean so i'm not saying that everything in room 237 is accurate mm -hmm. i'm not saying that i am saying that because he sp he was so eccentric and he spent so much time um on his movies that i do think there may be a wink and a nod i mean okay so danny is wearing like a rocket ship thing yeah on. yeah all right he had heard that rumor mm -hmm. uh, oh obviously i mean okay. it's the most popular that may have been a tongue-in-cheek thing sure i gotta ask you right now do you think he faked the moon landing no no <laughs> i don't think he faked the moon landing. okay i'm glad to hear that i no i don't i don't buy into conspiracy theories i'm just saying that Okay, Room 237 may be a serious attempt at something that Kubrick just thought was funny. Mm -hmm. sure. I think there may be things in The Shining that he put in there intentionally 
as kind of a wink and a nod, kind of what he thought was humorous. I'm not saying that's what the movie's about, but I think he still may be referencing it. So they're more Easter eggs and jokes than like yes. serious, like planted there food for thought. And yes. I, th- the reason I'm so skeptical when it comes to the Shining theories is where are these theories for Barry Lyndon? You know what I mean? You don't hear any theories about, oh, he snuck a moon. Well, but you do hear them about 2001. But I do think that 2001 and and The Shining. That's all I hear people theorizing about. No eyes wide shut. Oh, no, I have heard. I have heard theories about eyes wide shut. But um, I want to hear them. Are they from Tom Cruise himself? Because I wouldn't doubt it. From Tom Cruise, no, I wouldn't believe anything Tom Cruise says. But he's got anyway, a bunch of theories about everything just because well, of religion. Uh, yeah, but yeah, but we're not gonna get into that. But anyway, it's I think that we, I here's one thing from Room Tomb Three Seven. I do agree with mm-hmm. Barry Lyndon is a boring movie. <laughs> I agree. Sorry, it's a boring movie. Here's the and thing: when the critic goes, Barry Lyndon is a movie written and directed by a bored filmmaker, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing. Okay, I was I was wondering how long the shots in this movie were because the first shot alone, or not not the opening credits, but the first shot of uh Jack Torrance walking through the hotel is very long. So the average shot length is thirteen seconds long. Do you know what the average shot length for Barry Lyndon was? I mean not Barry Lyndon. Yeah Barry Lyndon is what I meant. It's almost twenty oh. seconds. The average shot length is almost 20 seconds. And let me let me put that figure into, into perspective. That includes every quick shot, every montage, all together averaged out 20 seconds. For The Shining, it's 13 seconds long. And that includes all the quick cuts and those horror vision, like Shining vision scenes, where it's like quickly montage-style flashing like in front of Van- Danny's vision. It counts all those one-frame flashes as shots. So when you consider that the average shot length is 13 seconds long, that's pretty insane. Yeah, but keep in mind, Kubrick always wanted to make a Napoleon movie. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't approve it because of the budget. Barry Lyndon almost seemed like, you know, kind of like his. All right, I want to do a period piece, so here it is. I... But Barry Lyndon, first of all, I think Ryan O'Neill is a terrible actor. I'll just say it. I, he's a terrible actor. I don't know why he had a career. Um, and yes, I've seen Paper Moon and all and Love Story. He's a terrible actor. I I can't stand Barry Lyndon. I think it's the worst movie Kubrick ever made, including Eyes Wide Shut, which I don't care for. Yeah, I think it's pretty boring, and I think a Napoleon movie would have been pretty boring, because knowing Kubrick, it would have been four and a half hours long, and the majority of it would have been candlelit conversations. Yeah, that was the big thing. He wanted to do a natural light movie, mm-hmm. which he did with Barry Lyndon, but I uh, I just think it's a terrible movie. But I, all I'm saying is, okay, I think Room 237 is a fascinating documentary. I don't buy into all of it. I think that a lot of the things they say that Kubrick was doing, he may have done as more of a joke Mm -hmm. than this is what the movie's about. Yeah, they take it more as conspiracy theory, kind of creepy. Oh, he snuck this in. Joe Rogan, you know, it's like a Joe Rogan-style conspiracy. Um, 
I yeah, I would err more on the side of Kubrick had a dark sense of humor and a, and he had kind of a he oh, wanted he to lead people on. Obviously, had a dark sense of humor. I mean, watch. Mm-hmm. It, you can't watch Dr. Strangelove and Clockwork Orange and yeah. not see that he had a dark, dark sense of humor. So he liked to lead those people on, especially the moon theory people. Oh, the he moon wanted to give thing them. I think is definitely there, but I think it was a joke. Yeah, he definitely wanted to have this kind of thick kind of joke that, uh, oh, maybe I did do it. You guys have a little bit more to feed off of. And he wanted right. that to continue. But OK, you mentioned Room 237, the movie. I have to ask about Room 237, The Room. Is that where the Grady stayed? Is that why it's so inherently easy? Well, in the book, it's actually Room 217. He did right. change that, which is weird. Right. Yeah, I remember in the miniseries it's saying 217, and, and of course that's from the book. Is that where the Grady stayed? Like, is that where they lived before... Uh, that uh, I can't remember. I don't think so. Why is Room 237 so inherently evil? That I don't know. I haven't seen 237 in a long time. They have theories about that, but I don't know. I'm wondering if maybe that's the brain of sorts of the Overlook. Um, And that's where all the bad stuff manifests because it's so easy for it to do it there. Now, here's another thing I have a question about, okay? When Jack is talking to uh, Grady in the bathroom, uh, Grady seems to suggest that he knows that Danny is using the shine to try to get uh, Dick's attention. And Grady is just like, like an extension of the Overlook at this point, like an avatar for the Overlook. Right. So does the Overlook have shine? Can it detect, can it read? Well, I, according to Dr. Sleep, it does, yes. It's, it's a, okay, so this is a thing with King, that mm-hmm. there are areas, houses, places whether they're due to bad things that happen or whatever, there, there are these places that just have this power. So it's like mm-hmm. the house in Salem's lot. Yep. Or the house in, uh, and it where yes. Pennywise's lair is. Yeah. Right. So there are the just o- these like center points that have these spiritual powers. Yeah. So the overlook is an entity. It is a creature in itself. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And it has the shine. So then I'm wondering it well, has, whether it has the shine or whether it just has a, it just has a spiritual center. Yeah, it can read the shine though. It knows that Danny is trying to contact Dick. Well, it, because these things are beyond us. These are yeah, yeah, sure. So I'm wondering if it has, uh, if it does have the shine, and it consumes people that have the shine, uh, like uh, uh, Rose the Hat and Doctor Sleep. Does right. that mean that people with the shine can also consume people with the shine? Like, could Danny just eat Dick Holleran and and can and well, sleep? They can if they're evil, because that's what Rose the Hat does. Sure, that's interesting, and that's interesting to me. I don't know. I love reading into the lore about this. Um, I took a lot of notes, but this is this is more on the side of just me being silly. But have you seen the Bob's Burgers episode, uh, which where <laughs> Bob is stuck in the walls? No. I don't think I've seen that one. I, it, I love Bob's Burgers, but I I don't remember that one. It so perfectly parodies uh, the bar scene from The Shining. Uh, you've got to go and look that up if you haven't already. But it's just so funny to see people like just dissect what's actually happening in The Shining because it, it feels so important and so like genius. Is it as good as Key and Peels? I would say it is because it's, wow. it's a higher episode. 
Uh, there's like a great deal of of care put in put into parodying uh, The Shining, but uh, Key and Peele's buffet episode is it, it is it's hilarious, but it's not really a Shining parody. It, like the last shot, the last couple shots are the only real Shining references. I think they just you know wanted to sneak. Obviously, Peele is a huge fan of The Shining. I think he's a huge fan of of horror, but the the majority of that sketch is literally just. He's impressed by foods because he thinks they're exotic, um, <laughs> uh, which I thought was funny. But uh, yeah, it's it's a great episode of the Bob's Burgers thing. But when I was watching the bar scene in The Shining, I was thinking of that the entire time because it's so funny to dissect what's actually happening there. Jack is sitting alone at the bar, talking to somebody who doesn't exist, drinking out of an empty glass. And getting angrier and angrier as he does, uh, which I just think is hilarious because there's no actual alcohol there. So that means that he's attempting to pay with real money is turned down uh, for fake booze and is talking to a fake person. And he gets angrier and angrier at Wendy as he does, uh, which I think is so funny. And I'm wondering uh, if Wendy were to walk in at that moment, she walks in later when he's not talking to Lloyd anymore. Would this be a very different movie? Would she realize immediately that Jack is already off his off his rocker and just flee in the snowcat with Danny that very moment? That would have been a very different. Well, of course, yeah, absolutely. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. But it goes back to Shelley Duvall's performance, which I know you put on Twitter and stuff. Without that, you wouldn't have had that confl- confliction. If you go back and watch The Shining, even when she has the bat. Mm-hmm. And she's confronting, you know, well, Jack's confronting her, but, you know, and she's swinging the bat. She does such a great job of being conflicted in that moment. Mm -hmm. You can see this, like, she doesn't want to hit him, but she doesn't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she asks several times. She's like, she's like, please just let me go back to my room. That's all she really wants. And he's intruding on her personal space. So, yeah, definitely she doesn't. It's obvious to me that she she does love Jack. She just thinks yeah. he's crazy. Um, yeah, it's it's. But I think that you know everybody talks about Jack Nicholson's performance in this, and rightly so because he's brilliant in it. But her performance is amazing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think a lot of the conflict there comes from the fact that if she's got to choose between her kid and her husband, she's choosing her kid because he and her in right. her eyes. And I don't know if if. If, but uh, you can see that it's still a, a conflict in yeah, her eyes. Definitely. And I, I, I don't know if, because this has been a point of contingency for me. I, I don't know if Jack actually did choke Danny. I think that was probably the overlook and some extension of it. Maybe the twins um, when he has well, his bruises on his neck. Into, does Jack have the shining? Yeah. Because Which in Dr. Sleep implies he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it's genetic, possibly, uh, which I, I think is a really interesting idea. But, um, yeah, I, so, yeah, I, I think there's some great performances. I mean, Shelley Duvall, she deserved some recognition, some kind of award for oh, this. she deserved, I mean, she got the Golden Raspberry nomination for Worst Performance. I'm thinking, yeah. did you watch this movie? Yeah, I think that's mostly just because of how... I mean, it does seem, when you're watching it at a surface level, you're like, what are you doing, Wendy? Come on. This guy is crazy. You need to leave right now. But think about her position. Think about where she, she's isolated. She's miles away from anything. Right, yeah. Uh, She, the way she sees it, 
she's only got two people she can trust in the world when she starts off the story. Her husband and her kid. Her husband is a murderous, you know, he's a psycho at this point. Her kid is freaking out, having seizures and having visions. She's pretty much alone here. And she's alone in this giant, eerie, ghostly hotel right. with a with a killer psycho guy. Which is a common ghosts. trope in Stephen King, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, it's an individual or in a group that's isolated. Yeah. And and he loves to make this like desperation, sort of like Candyman almost. I feel like it shares similarities to that. And and that Helen and Wendy lose everyone that they can trust. And they're right. all on their own. Right. And they have nobody to turn to. Yeah. Um, which, and there you go, Candyman, another movie influenced by The Shining. Uh, it was such an influential movie. And yeah, it is, it is a really and a how shame. Much, that, how much do you, I mean, I can't wait to see Nia DaCosta's Candyman. I know. I yeah, it, whenever it's coming out. I have no idea yeah. when the stuff is going to come out. That yeah. and Antebellum and uh, Halloween Kills. Halloween Kills, yeah. The horror uh, community needs something to watch in theaters, but most of all, we need people to get better. We need drive-ins, is what we need. Let's yes. just get it yes. on the drive-in. Let's go. Let's get Joe Bob out there. Let's do it. We are drive-in uh, mutants. We are freaks. We want the drive-in back. It would be so perfect during the time. All right. So what else do you want to talk about with The Shining? What else you got in your notes that you want to talk about with Stanley Kubrick's The Shining? And it's really a Stanley Kubrick's The Shining as much mm-hmm. as it is Stephen King's The Shining. So you mentioned uh, Dick Howard's room. Can we talk yeah. about it? It feels like we're in a Tarantino movie for the few minutes we're graced with his presence. Well, okay. I read about that. Go ahead. It feels so out of place. I mean, I wrote my notes. This is all I wrote. And the reason I know that I was referring to this is because it's the only other time I referred to anything The Shining is hilarious. But I wrote, hilarious. Hilarious, I say. And it is. <laughs> the set decoration... Is just so wacky. Well, the what I read was the whole point was to show that he's not superhuman. He's an average guy who just has to have this gift. Mm-hmm. Because the when they were writing this in in the late seventies, that was common. So it's just to show that look, he's not Superman. He's not you know. Um, as Daryl would say on Retro Movie Geek, he's not the magical Negro. He's just a guy. Yeah. He's not a Ben Kenobi type, is what I was... I think right. Kubrick was afraid of him seem, seeming too, like, wise hermit. No, he's... A, yeah, he's just a regular dude, and even though he's, like, he's an adult, you know what I mean? Right. But it feels like the most 70s thing I've ever seen. And it's so out of place. Well, in but it was a written and directed movie. in the seventies. So, I mean yeah. that, yeah, it's but just it, a, yeah, it's a period piece, but it's just trying to show, I think what Kubrick was trying to do there was showing, okay, Dick Halloran. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's, he's a good person and that he's, he's concerned about Danny, but at the end of the day, he's just an average Joe. Right. I mean, and, and that goes back to he wanted slim pickings. It wasn't white or black. It was he wanted slim pickings, a white guy. For the, he just wanted an average person who just happened to have this thing, which has no financial benefit. It's just he just has it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So I have more lore that I want to touch on. All right. So we see the ghosts of the twins, but right. not Grady's wife who also died in his in his rampage. Do you have any That's theories on that? 
and why we don't see his wife. Is, is there some significance to that? Perhaps that she went on to a better place and uh, morbidly her children did not? I have no idea. That's a very good question. In fact, I think it would have been creepier if she would have been with the twins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. You got the two or twins with and Brady, her behind them. Either one. I think that would have been creepier. I think that's well. It would have been creepy if if Mrs. Grady was in the the men's restroom. Yeah, I agree. Um, which is where we we see Grady. But yeah, or if she had been the woman in the room in, in the bathtub. Oh, she might have been. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to think about that. I know. I, mean, I know. I get anyways, it. that that just struck me as being strange, and I it's it's implied that that's not the first tragedy that's happened. That's just the most recent because the hotel is is evil, so I'm sure it's inspired more evil acts in the past. Right. But it seems like the hotel just kind of uses whatever it thinks would scare the person it's trying to influence the most so it, it knew danny was wandering the hotel so it was going to use somebody his own age they would just make it creepier so um yeah that that's interesting now the indian bur- burial ground reference in the beginning huh. so, so that's a huge theory that somehow this is all connected to right it's american um, imperialism yep okay. yep so native american burial ground that the overlook was was built on they say that construction crews had to fight off uh, Native American raids on on the hotel construction. Um, so that says to me something's there that they don't want <laughs> unearthed, and and obviously it's disrespectful to them. But if they're fighting to like the to the death, there's something buried there that they do not think should be unearthed. So um, now, now you're coming around to room two, three, seven, the documentary, aren't you? But here's aren't the you? thing: they go too far with it. That's the thing with me. I do think it's there because obviously, I mean, Mr. Ullman says it that that, that it was built on an Indian burial ground. And, I mean, later we see in the food storage place that coffee with the with the uh, the Native American like profile on it, right. and and being which there's the, Kubrick insists was a coincidence, but there's no way. Mm-hmm. And when he pays attention to every, like every single little detail, everything has to be symmetrical. Every all the colors have to be right. There's no way right. he didn't notice the that. red and yellow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that tells me that that there was at least a seed there. Um, and we get some snowcat foreshadowing in the in the beginning uh, in that same scene. Uh, so Kubrick was really being efficient. So then we get a, a walk-in freezer foreshadow later. So, I mean, he's just very efficient in the opening scenes. I feel like Kubrick is yeah, setting and up. That's, a- and that's why it's given that's why it's given seed to so many conspiracy theories, right? Because yeah. you can see how he plans these things out. And so that's why it's people read so much into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he was very methodical. And I can't admit that. I, I do not think he intended for all this theories to hold water. I just think he threw that in there as food for thought, just as extra stuff to kind of catch on later viewings. So, okay. I agree. Jack, Jack Torrance, right? He's the Stephen King stand-in. He's a writer. He's got writer's block. He's, he's trying to find a way to write a new book. And we also see that misery, right? Uh, the, the writer who just sure. can't turn out his next book uh, won't live up to Because it's Stephen book. King, yeah. yeah. Right. So what would Stephen King know about writer's block? Dude's pumped out 
more books, more consistently than Bill Russell pumped out like NBA championships in the 60s. <laughs> Dude, did like, what do you know about writing? Well, but I mean, first of all, um, a lot of King stuff, especially in the last 20 years, has been crap. Um, but he had he has admitted that a lot of stuff he has written, he doesn't even remember writing. I mean, I know right. that's. Cocaine I mean, is so, one heck of a drug, Dave Chappelle. Yeah, so I, I think every writer has gone through writer's block and has re-guessed himself. And I loved. I just rewatched it, Chapter Two, the other day. Mm-hmm. I love that they lampoon about how much his ending sucked. Yeah, and even Stephen King says it himself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, that's great. He he at least has a sense of humor about it. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Wendy's fashion sense. Can we talk about that? Wendy... Yeah, well, Wendy in in the later parts of the movie is wearing a tan turtleneck covered with a green flannel and a pair of corduroy overalls. And and listen, adorning the whole outfit, right, is the ultimate accessory, a baseball bat. (laughs) So, she is a fashion icon, in my opinion. This is the most 80s... uh, fashion sense of well it's 70s it's more 70s well sure yeah and then jack has the same outfit on go google chess king and merry-go-round and you'll see what people were wearing in the 80s but go ahead corduroy overalls really over a green flannel and a a tan turtleneck really windy that's what you're going with i do remember that stuff yes (sighs) wow um (laughs) i i had never really paid attention to it um, but that surprised me. It also surprised me that Jack has like two outfits. He's either got the green turtleneck on or that red jacket with a, like a polo underneath, uh, which is so funny how they show Wendy in so many different like f- like different flamboyant outfits. And he's just got the simple man's, which is just like more, uh, I think, lends itself to the idea that he's a regular guy. But again, it's Jack Nicholson. I think the floppy purple hat and Batman fit him better than than the everyman costumes in The Shining. Um, well, but he is the everyman here. He's just crazy. Yeah, he, he's he's yeah, he's everyman you don't want to be, I guess. Um, yeah, well, but go back and watch like five easy pieces and and carnal knowledge with Jack Nicholson, and you'll see that yeah, it's not that out of character. Mm-hmm. So okay, red rum. It's something so iconic. It, everybody loves uh, the imagery of it, and they can all do Tony saying red rum. Um, I don't fully understand what it means, why he was writing murder on the... Was it just like, wake up, Wendy, Jack's coming for us. But there's a better way of doing that, I feel like, than writing red rum, walking around with a knife, and just chanting red rum until Wendy wakes up. Well, I don't then understand. it wouldn't have been as cool. I guess so, but I don't, you don't have the big surprise without that. Yeah, but I mean, come on, Tony. It's a matter of life and death. Jack is coming for you, and you decide to set up this whole this whole thing for Wendy to discover. But Tony um, is from the future, so. Yeah, but but still, I mean, come on, Tony. Uh, you can just say, "Hey, Wendy, wake up! Jack is coming for us." Instead of let's scare you out of your noggin with this like murder reveal. But and he's that- traveling dimensions, Jackson. Okay, you gotta, okay. Keep that in mind. Come on. Yeah. So so our ways are not his ways. He knows better than we do, I guess. Exactly. But, uh, <laughs> it's another thing I noticed. I love the way Jack says, "Hair of the dog who bit me." 
that is such like a nothing line, but Jack Nicholson can make anything iconic. Like that, I had to rewind several times just to hear him say it because it was so satisfying. He's so good. His eyes are so creepy. And I feel like those are the deadlights. The deadlights that, that Stephen King writes about in It are Jack Nicholson's eyes because they're so glossy and it feels like there's a light coming from the inside of them and they're so creepy. Ooh, I like Man. that. I haven't thought of that. Do not stare into those things. Well, for any you know, and you know yeah. King well enough to know he kind of sets everything in the same universe. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely tied to the Dark Tower universe, obviously, with maternal. I don't know how you do about the stand, but still. Yeah. Well, I think the stand is... I, they're mostly like parallel dimensions, right? It's all tied together by the deities, by Pennywise and Maturin, by these extraterrestrial kind of entities. But it's like a multiverse sort of thing, where there's one overarching like kind of universe, but they're all in their own little realities. That's the okay. way I see it. Hey, I'll go with it. But, but um, and, and the stand is kind of in this strange... Uh, weird like because it was re-released in the 90s right like a lot of parts were rewritten and some parts were added but it's still set in the 70s so it's like this weird kind of timeless thing i don't know well Uh, yeah the 90s miniseries they tried i think mick garris tried to contemporize it but yeah i hear what you're saying yeah so okay I would love to see a movie about Grady going crazy in the Overlook, like a prequel. You can call it Stained Apricots, you know, call back to the, to him uh, <laughs> spilling it all over Jack. But I want to see that. Why has that not been done yet? Honestly, I would have rather seen a sequel, I mean, a prequel with Grady written by King than King's Dr. Sleep novel. Why didn't he do that? I well, like the Doctor Sleep there. novel I didn't care for, but the Me movie neither. I thought was incredible. So yeah, and that's because I'll the movie is more of a is just as much a sequel of the Shining movie as the book, right? So it's got those Kubrick esque moments in it. It's not just relying entirely on the book universe, which I think was again. I mean, I wish it had gone full in with the Shining uh, movie, but whatever. Um, he should have done that. Make Stained Apricots, uh, Stephen King, I'm telling you, it'll do amazingly. Because even though we know how it ends up with Grady killing his whole family, I kind of want to see it transpire. I want to see Grady before he was crazy. Because as is, we just know him when he's crazy. And he is really entertaining. (laughs) Like, I could listen to him say corrected all day. It's so funny. Like, okay, listeners at home right now, try it. I had to do it several times while I was watching the movie. Every (laughs) single time he would say and then my daughters acted out, so I had to correct them. I was like, oh, it's so good. I love that accent and everything. That's another thing we need to talk about. Why is Grady British? But I I don't think his daughters are. He's just like randomly the British butler. Well, all right. So he just, he came from Britain to America, and that's the job he got. His kids were raised in America, so. He came from Britain to presumably uh, New England, knowing where all King's movies are set. Um, to be the the overseer of a little hotel. Well, maybe he was. He had the same thing as Jack. He was trying to write the great great novel or whatever. Maybe that's it. It it yeah. only lures in authors. That might very well be the case. I like that. Um, okay, we talked about Shelley Duvall earlier and her performance and how it's so great. But I recommend to listeners something. Look up the Hello, I'm Shelley Duvall uh, video on YouTube. Just type in Hello, I'm Shelley Duvall. You will be, your socks will be knocked off. It is hilarious. She had this, this show, this TV show, I guess in the 80s, where she would introduce yep. things. 
And yep. every single episode, she would open it up with, Hello, I'm Shelley Duvall. And it was the same exact timbre in her voice. And yeah, it was on a, like HBO. Yep, yep, I remember it. Yep. So they somebody made a compilation of every single intro, and it's so eerie how she recreates the same tone and the same face like every single time. It's hilarious. You got to see it. Look up "Hello, I'm Shelley Duvall." Well, I she's probably that. just traumatized by Stanley Kubrick. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, and she went as far away from horror as she could. I mean, that show was definitely not horror. Oh yeah. Uh, but uh, so yeah, so. I'm convinced, all right, this is this is another point I have here in my notes, that The Shining alone got Jack Nicholson the role of the Joker. I mean, the seeds are there. He's got that grin, right, the crazy outbursts. I think Jack Torrance just needs some face makeup and a, and a little cane and a purple suit, and then he's all set. And I was thinking in my head, Kubrick's Batman. Boy, wouldn't that have been interesting. Yeah, I mean, he just he needed a sense of humor, which he didn't have in The Shining. But yeah, um, it's more well, like I mean, Todd, it's more like Todd Phillips got together with, you know, Stanley Kubrick and that became Joker. Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. And throw in, you know, some comedian in between and boom, you, you've got what you have. Well, here's the thing. with Maybe the, Sam Kennison or somebody. The thing with the Joker is that. uh I mean, his jokes aren't funny, right? They're just kind of mean and menacing. I feel like that's kind of the level that Jack is on when he says, um, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. I feel like that's kind of like, he's like, you didn't let me finish. That That's a very Joker moment, I feel like. But um, yeah, definitely. Uh, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. He had to be a little bit sillier. But uh, yeah, I, I feel like this is definitely what got him that role. Because if it's, if it's just him... You watch, I don't know, the original, uh, uh, man, what's the movie called with the talking plant and, and the store, the musical? Little Shop Horse. Yeah, the original. You watch that with Jack Nicholson going to the dentist's office, and you don't think there's the Joker, right? You watch him in The Raven. Is that what the name of that movie was? With, yeah. uh, with, and you watch him, and you're like, that's not the Joker. Well, and the terror and so forth. I mean, yeah, he did all those Corman movies, but oh man, I honestly, I, 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 you know, as great as I love him as the Joker, I don't think he's any Heath Ledger. No, no, definitely not. And I, I this has been hotly contested, but I don't even think that uh, Joaquin Phoenix was on the same level as Heath Ledger. No. Heath Ledger dedicated his entire life and soul, and it ended up in him dying. I, I, I honestly think that the amount of— Well, according to Jack Nicholson, you're right. I mean, he's, yeah. he's kept telling me he warned him, yeah, because he got so into character. And, yeah, he like, went so method that he got depressed, that he went insane, and he just resorted to drug use. And, um, yeah, not great, um, but he put his heart and soul in that. And The Dark Knight, I still believe, without Heath Ledger— would not have been anywhere near as good as it as it ended up being just because no I, I completely i completely and i think that's the reason people say that the dark knight is the best batman maybe just because he's so well, breathtaking but uh yeah the kubrick's batman all i'm saying great great idea uh, we need to see somebody on YouTube make a make a mock up of what that would have been like. And and I was gonna say earlier, the terror is that that movie that had Boris Karloff in it for like three scenes, and then Jack Nicholson yeah. like fighting birds in the ocean yep. or something. Yep, that's it. Oh my gosh, who thought that was a good idea? Well, they just Roger Corman had him for a couple of days, didn't want to lose him, and so just shot stuff around him. So that's that is that's so how that, Corman. So. 
That is oh, so yeah. cool. Of course so cheap. He's like, I, I don't want to pay him any extra. So I've already got him for these days. Let's just make a whole movie. Oh, my gosh, Corbin. Yeah. Come on, buddy. That's what they did. All right. So um, my bladder's about to explode. So yeah, I understand. Let's, let's, move, let's move on to our ratings and recommendations. I feel like people let's are do it. Oh, I'm uh, sure they do. You go first. This is a rare instance for me. I'm going to have to give it a 10 out of 10. I would highly recommend that you watch this, own it. I plan on buying uh, the 4K Blu-ray. And because here's the thing, though. I need to watch this in theaters at some point. I oh, need to yeah. watch it. I need to watch every single format. I need to watch it on even VHS. I'll watch it on VHS. I'll watch it on beta, whatever, um, because it is just that good. I want to get to the point where I have every line memorized because it, it it deserves it. The amount of work people put into this, it deserves your love and your love and attention. So yeah, ten out of ten. Highly recommend that you own it. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's as close to perfect as a movie can be. I'm right there with you. Ten out of ten. Ordering the 4K mm-hmm. along with the Jaws 45th anniversary 4K. Yes, gotta yeah. have it absolutely. And yeah, we absolutely have to see it on the big screen. You and I together. So before we reveal our next movie, we want to um, thank our Patreon supporters. Mm-hmm. Um, new podcast up just for them on heavy metal and horror movies, which uh, right. Jackson edited and. And we plan on doing some more fairly soon, including, uh, including, excuse me, a Siskel and Ebert. That's right. Yeah. yeah. On horror movies. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Father and Son Horror and on Instagram. And we have a closed Facebook group. And you can click on fatherandsonwatchhorror.com. Where can they find you, buddy? On Twitter, I'm at Kane underscore Hero 12. That's K-A-I-N-E uh, underscore Hero 12. On Letterboxd, I'm at Kane Hero. That's one word. I've got a YouTube channel that's floating around the internet, so you should check that out. And they can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd as Pastor Matt R. As we record this, we are not out of COVID-19 woods yet, so be safe, social distance, wash your hands, wear a mask, listen to a lot of podcasts like HNP, L-O-T-C, Land of the Creeps, horror movie podcast that is Retro Movie Geek, Terror on the Tube, the huh podcast, <laughs> and to tease our upcoming guest, the Kill the Dead podcast, we will welcome Ash, known on Twitter as Ash X Ashes. So, and on that, we will be covering No One Lives, which is streaming on Tubi right now for free. So thanks for listening and say goodbye to good people. Goodbye, and remember to sabotage your snowcats. <laughs> See you next time, and remember, the family that watches Horde together slays together.